Welcome to The Prevention Perspective, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about violence prevention work. The topics discussed in this podcast, including healthy relationships, prevention practices, and dating or sexual violence can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Prevention Perspective. My name is Tracy Darling Marcus, uh, she, her pronouns, and I am the Prevention Program Manager at the WCA in Boise. I'm here with my lovely co-host, Maria. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Maria. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a JVC Northwest AmeriCorps volunteer um, working at WCA as a prevention coordinator. And we are here today with an amazing, amazing um, colleague and, and collaborator in this work that we're doing in our community here in the Treasure Valley, Boise area. And we're just so excited to, to hear from them today. So, Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Do you want to just give us a little bit of information about yourself? What do you do? Where are you at? Yeah, so I am from Boise. I live in Nampa. Um, My name is Terry Scraggins, pronouns he, they. Uh, I am a licensed social worker and a community health worker at Jesse Tree here in downtown Boise. And and I'm a Navy veteran and I'm a, I already said a licensed social worker, so I think that's good. That's great. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about being a community health worker? Like, what does that actually mean? Um, So the way I've kind of described it to a lot of people is assisting clients in accessing resources in the community. So as a community health worker specific to Jesse Tree and my position was funded by a grant and it's the first like nonprofit that assists with housing to have a community health worker. So people that have been assisted with rent and eviction prevention and they have unmet health needs. I try to get them connected with referrals to resources such as uh, social security, getting them signed up to apply for disability, Mm. um, getting them connected with food stamps, assisting them in getting like concrete resources such as clothing um, or food boxes, things like that. That's awesome. I I love that there's a specific person to help with those things because all of those systems can be so difficult to navigate for people that having like a you're like a tour guide (laughs) of all the amazing resources that people can access um i love that 100 percent, and i think too that we just had just you just had our annual fundraiser last week and I spoke at it and that's literally what I said. I was like, systems are complicated enough. Like I know this as a social worker and as a recipient of case management from my childhood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's, it feels like you don't have any power and it's very confusing. Every system is just so confusing and they don't typically talk well together to each other. So having an individual to help 
navigate through those complexities is super helpful, I feel like. Yeah. And so who do you usually like see accessing Jesse Tree or like the services that you guys are offering? Yeah, I would say typically my client base or caseload are people that are middle-aged to aging, like elderly, as well as individuals that have experienced like DV. And a lot of the people that I work with are single as well. I think the majority of the people that I've been working with are middle to elderly individuals for the most part. Yeah. I think it's interesting too that you mentioned they have experiences of domestic violence, a lot of them, because we do know that the number one cause of houselessness for women and children is domestic violence. So that that tracks pretty closely with, you know, the, what we see in our world and, and fields. What, uh, what brought you to social work? What didn't bring me to social work? <laughs> <laughs> No, um, to actually answer your question and not avoid with a joke, um, I have, I've experienced social work in a lot of different facets. So um, I was in foster care as a child and aged out of foster care. So I worked with social workers a lot. I also just, my entire family has been pretty like poverty stricken. And so constantly working with systems, complex systems and I managed to be an anomaly in terms of what statistics look like for individuals that are like raised in poverty and uh, age out of the foster care system. And so I kind of consider myself just to be a bleeding heart because I feel like more people should have access to be able to succeed and be successful. So that's the long answer. Well, you're like tracking right up into what we're going to jump into next. So this season, we're digging into different types of risk and protective factors. Again, kind of in this idea of or this model that was developed originally in public health settings. Um, but this idea that there are different factors that influence in a, the potential for somebody to perpetrate and or experience violence on an individual relationship and community and society level. And so today we're really trying to hone in on these like community level risk factors. And some of those include communities with high rates of poverty and limited educational access, limited economic opportunities or high unemployment areas, or even just communities where neighbors don't know each other to look out for each other or there's low community involvement among residents. So I'm curious, Terry, if you can talk a little bit about maybe how those risk factors show up in the work that you do with Jesse Tree, and yeah, what that looks like in the sense of the community here in our area. Yeah, when I think about like risk factors in, in communities specifically, I think the thing that stood out to me the most out of what you just mentioned was the high rates of like poverty and unemployment. Mm. I think that a big reason, at least with some of the clientele that I've worked with that are trying to find jobs or experiencing poverty, obviously they have to meet certain criteria in order to receive funding from an agency such as Jesse Tree, which is within that um, lower than 80% uh, median income. But I think that has been the biggest thing that I've noticed because when you are in a position of crisis or you're in a position of like poverty or you don't have a job you it makes you even more vulnerable Mm -hmm. and you're more susceptible to do things out of crisis because of the position that you're in and I think that that's like a power 
a power struggle or like a power move. Mm. Um, I think in addition, having minimal natural supports as well has been a recurring theme or like a, a risk factor because if you don't have someone to lean on when you feel like you're struggling or you're in a state of crisis, yeah. then what do you do? Mm. So I think when I think of all of kind of what you just mentioned, that's what stood out to me the most. I hope that I answered your question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So why do you think it is that people experiencing like poverty are at higher risk for experiencing violence? Yeah, I think people that are experiencing poverty are more at more higher risk of experiencing violence because they feel like they're in a position that they don't have control over like a situation. Um, I think also that a big piece of it is when you're vulnerable or if you're in a position where you don't have money or you're not able to pay bills, that adds stress to your day-to-day life. Um, a lot of the people that I'm working with, a very big part of their struggle is finances. And so they're doing everything that they can in order to pay bills so that they have power, so that they have heat, especially with it being the winter time. Like mm. I have had a client that sold their TV so that they could pay a bill, but they literally are selling things that are like close to them or that are helpful to them because they don't want to feel or have less of a sense of safety by like potentially losing their house. Because if you can't pay your power bill, that's a prime example of like a potential lease violation and you could be evicted for something like that. So I think that the what it all boils down to is the vulnerability piece. When you're experiencing poverty, you're automatically in a vulnerable position. Yeah. And that just feeds into additional factors such as experiencing like domestic violence Mm -hmm. and then it could be a a reason that an individual does not remove themselves from that situation because they're in a position where they're already stressed out they're experiencing poverty they could be in a position or they could be with someone and they're afraid to leave because they don't know what they're going to do yeah yeah we see that a lot and I think one of the number one causes of or reasons why people do choose to stay in domestic violence situations is often because of finances. And yeah, sometimes the choice is, do I stay in this relationship or do I become homeless? Yeah. Right? And that's an impossible decision for somebody to try and make and for somebody to have to make. And I think it's, I think you're, you're connecting a lot of dots, I think too, because even on the community level that we're talking about today, like the individual levels and the relational levels all kind of build up into these community risk factors that we're talking about. Well, I think too that additionally in talking with poverty and financial power, Mm -hmm. a lot of times when individuals are in a relationship that is not healthy, it also in turn there's a power like with the finances too. So that's like another added layer. And I know I'm preaching, Mm -hmm. like I know y'all know this, but um, I think that is a huge, like a huge factor in it as well. But I think when we are looking at or thinking about communities and individuals that are experiencing or in vulnerable positions with poverty, DV, all of the above, 
that if you don't have a sense of community during this stressful time, it just com- further compounds it. Mm, yeah. Um, curious if you want to make any connections between these risk factors that we're talking about, specifically like poverty, um, minimal natural supports, those sorts of things with the work that you did with the child welfare system and how that can translate into longer term impacts for those children. Yeah, I mean, I say we know like everyone's a social worker and I'm like, oh wait, just kidding. Not everyone (laughs) does know. I have to sometimes forget that it's different. But uh, in a lot of times, so when I worked for the state, I, I worked in as a safety assessor for a year. Um, So I wasn't the individual that went like knocking on doors Mm -hmm. to assess and investigate child abuse and neglect. And then I also did foster care licensing. So licensing foster parents to care for children that were in care. Um, I want to draw a little bit of just like context from when I worked in safety. There were an alarming number of safety referrals that I had been assigned in my time that there wasn't any specific like evidence but based on the interactions that I had with the families and just some of the behaviors that they were presenting with led me to believe or they even said something but there's unless there's actual like factual evidence there's nothing that that you can do Um, so there were times where I would interview or work with a family and they would be cooperative and be like very like straightforward and then they would like fall off or disengage and i think not only is that not good from a standpoint of like being an employee and trying to determine if a child is safe but then i think in addition it it doesn't look good in the report when you're trying to like close a case out because you can't get in touch with a family anymore but i think that I don't think I know I had quite a few times with people that I was working with where they would be engaged and then they wouldn't and then we didn't have enough information to continue to assess and couldn't get in touch with them. And knowing that that is affecting the children like alone when a social worker goes in, Mm. it's already traumatic and we were taught this in training to be a child welfare worker when a stranger comes to interview a child, right? Mm. So... If I'm going to interview a child and then all of a sudden the family disengages or stops engaging with me and there's additional, like, stressors within the family dynamic, that's obviously going to be traumatic. But then if if and whenever there's an additional report that comes in and a family is assessed for safety again, if something happens where the state does determine the child is unsafe then at that point, that's an additional further like complex trauma. Mm. Because we also know that if a child is removed from their parents, regardless of the circumstances, it's traumatic. So I think that that can result in like kind of show itself in behaviors in kind of like just disengaging and and struggling with trust as they get older. Mm. Um, I just, I could literally talk about it for days, but there's so many different things. It impacts children definitely when there is stressors and poverty and we need to figure out like ways that we can support and destigmatize people that that need help and i guess like going on to that like what are some ways that we can help destigmatize these ideas that are kind of implemented in our society yeah i think 
some of the ways, obviously, is education. I think that's the first piece. Um, I think also kind of an, um, under that umbrella is trauma-informed information because I think that there's a lot of stigma placed on the individuals that are experiencing um poverty experiencing domestic violence experiencing like minimal natural supports and so it makes it even harder for them to come through to try and seek services because they're ashamed of their situation and a lot of people that are experiencing a lot of what i just mentioned typically have lower self-esteem because of their experiences so we just need to be kinder I think everyone just needs to be kinder and that's like a huge ask and that's a very like broad answer. (laughs) But I really think that is at least a start. Absolutely. I wonder too, like uh, there's this idea of like, well, if people wanted to do things differently, they would. We get this question all the time in our field with like, oh, well, if somebody wanted a different relationship, they would just leave it. Um, if somebody wants to get themselves out of poverty, they just will. Don't get me started. Oh, I'm get I'm I'm getting you started here because I want to go into it. So like, what? Why can't? Why is it impossible for people to just get themselves out of poverty? Like, there's, and I I know I'm. Baiting, maybe a little bit. No, <laughs> like, not, not at all. You're totally fine. But I, I think it. I think there are a lot of people who have that mentality of like, well, if they just spent their money differently, or if they just, you know, learned how to do X Y Z better, then they'd be fine. But it's like, no, we have a. We're working within a system that is actively opposing those things. So. Yeah, like what can we what can we do differently? Like how can we be better about that? I think when you mentioned that, the first the first place my mind went to was being taught in undergrad when I was in school for my my bachelor's in social work, like two things. You don't know what you don't know. So if you're not learning something or you're not educated or you don't have a resource or a support to teach you certain things you're never like you you don't know Mm -hmm. and then in addition to that is also an undergrad clearly I paid attention because it it was my jam in social work and and psychology and like when we're thinking about like the brain instead of as a culture I think we're doing this we still have a ways to go but instead of asking the question like what is wrong with you like asking like what happened to you Mm. because I think that Trauma is very, like, it's very complex in regards to if you're not addressing the trauma or if you're not in a place to address the trauma, which is also a thing, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what it is and your triggers and your coping skills, then it's easy to get stuck in a spot. And, like, I am a prime example of that. I remember being a young adult and I kept crashing and burning and I couldn't figure out why. And it's because I had unresolved trauma. And it took many years of like therapy and working through that in order to understand like my triggers and have mm-hmm. and start building positive coping skills. But I think that's really what it boils down to is like, you don't know what you don't know. 
And also, if you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know kind of what's going on in your brain, because we can't control when we're being triggered. Mm -hmm. A lot of things that people do in a state of crisis, if they don't have the appropriate skills they need to like get through that, is kind of like take it's like take a couple steps forward take a couple steps back take a couple steps forward so i don't know if i answered your question at all i think i did but i don't know if you need to ask a follow-up question please do it just makes me like angry well and i think (laughs) yes i agree and i think too that like american culture doesn't help in in a lot of regards because and this is just my opinion and my experience and my worldview, but like we are so focused and hyper fixated on like image and perception, individualistic culture that I think it's so hard, especially for people that are in a position where they're in crisis or they, they want to talk to someone, but they're afraid to because they're afraid of being judged. Mm -hmm. But I think that's like a huge part of it too. How do you think poverty impacts children or adults or elderly in the system? Yeah, I think for children specifically, I think that poverty affects children in like the system specific to child welfare, uh, that families that are more lower income or have lower like tax brackets have a tendency to have more involvement with the child welfare system. Same with the parents, because they're continuously being assessed for, like, appropriateness. For the elderly, when I think about, like, a an elderly individual or a couple or family that's in poverty, I think it could be life or death, honestly, in terms of, like, systems and resources, because personally, I believe, our culture is not set up in a way and our systems are not set up in a way to be proactive they're set up in a way to be reactive in terms of like assisting elderly individuals and I think specifically about like the uptick in the elderly population being like having to go to shelters Mm -hmm. and their health needs Mm -hmm. and shelters are not able to or not equipped to assist them a lot of services and resources aren't geared towards assisting like elderly or there just aren't enough. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting too. Again, I can get nerd out into like the data and stuff, but like, yeah, people are living longer now. And so the resources or the programs that are available that are this have the same capacity as they did 20, 30 years ago are not going to be able to cut it. Mm-hmm. So we need to adjust, but it seems like there's just not a willingness. I don't think it's an inability. I think it's an unwillingness to, to recognize that and to really invest in in that sort of programming. 100%. And that, too, kind of sparked a thought in my mind as well about when individuals, more so on like the aging population, when people are older they typically have a fixed income Mm. and social security is not increasing at the rate that cost of living is. So I can't tell you how many people I've had on my caseload that are on a fixed income. They make too much to get food stamps or they'll get like $30 in food stamps a month Mm. and their rent 
is barely covered by their social security or their disability benefits, but there's no resources to catch them so that they can make sure that they have everything that they need, whether that be like they're getting medication assistance, but they can't get a job because if they get a job, they'll make too much to qualify for medication assistance. Mm. Or they their rent is fifteen fifty, they make sixteen fifty but they still have to pay utilities and gas and insurance and phone bill. And they, there's no, there's just not enough resources or services. And it isn't, it breaks my heart because it isn't the individual's fault. It's like the system's fault. And no one knows. And I, maybe there is someone out there and I just don't know them, but like, I feel like no one knows how to fix this at the rate that it's getting out of control. I'm curious, too, if you can give us a little bit more background around particularly like children who grow up in poverty and how that can be a generational cycle and then what potentially can can disrupt that cycle. Yeah. uh, And I know that like we've talked about this but i think that you don't know what you don't know right and so i think that that also kind of bleeds into the the poverty piece and children children that are born in poverty and let's say I'm trying to think of like an anecdote cuz like i am an individual that i think that i'm an anomaly and i've like was able to get resources i'll get to that in a second but prime example a single mom or a single dad or single parent is working two jobs to support themselves and their child in poverty. So they're constantly at, at work or trying to find ways to provide for the house. So the child is at school and then comes home and parents aren't home. So they're not getting that interaction with the parent. They're not getting, like, maybe help with their homework. Mm -hmm. And, like, down the line, that's going to affect them, right? They may not have, like, a sense of, like, support from their parent. Not because the parent doesn't want to support them, but the parent has to make a decision on whether or not they're going to make sure that the child has a roof over their head and, like, food to eat. Right. Or providing like that that empathy and compassion so and I personally like experienced that growing up with my family but I think that if if a cycle isn't broken it's like going to go into it because if a child is seeing that their parent is always gone working trying to support the child then the values and experiences are going to be like imprinted and is now part of them this is what they saw their parent do so it's easier or it's more common for them to take on some of those like coping mechanisms or those like personality traits or things like that. In terms of like if that cycle isn't broken or if there aren't resources or if there aren't services like wraparound services and supports, then it's almost as if the the child is could potentially be destined to continue that cycle. Like in my specific situation, I grew up in a family that was very impoverished, very like like substance use issues, unmet needs, a lot of trauma, a lot of um, dysfunction. And I truly don't think that I would 
be in my second semester of my master's program as like a licensed social worker if I hadn't gone into foster care Mm -hmm. because I don't think that the cycle would have been broken so I, th- I don't know what I would be doing, but I, I just see a lot of my family and their like negative outcomes, and I see where I am, and I know I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't have resources, if I didn't have supports, if I didn't have additional services by entering the foster care system. And I don't think that that's the answer. <laughs> I just want to make that super clear. Um, but I think that by that, the path that my life took, that I am in a position to be where I am today and I wouldn't otherwise. Mm. And I think that that's a pretty like similar situation for a lot of people. Like if you don't have the resources, if you don't have the services and supports, how are you going to know what you need to do to, to get better? Yeah. How are you going to know what you need to do to survive and and get a leg up? And it's just such like, it seems like such a self-perpetuating like, Okay, there are resources available, but society is actively telling you that you're weak or that you're Mm -hmm. somehow broken if you access those resources. So then you feel guilt and shame for accessing them. So then you don't. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you know, it's just like somewhere along the line, we have to decide we as like a society and like in our culture are not going to be that way anymore or not going Mm -hmm. to perpetuate those things that have such like long standing effects that they can in, in you know interrupt generations of of families. Well, and I think too that like a big piece of it as well is like language and attitudes towards kind of going back mm-hmm. to like when I mentioned about like individualistic cultures and like expectations of like what perception like it's all a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Like you take culture out of it and it's like just facts but you throw in like oh people have very many people have very strong feelings about individuals that are like on snap or food stamps and whether or not they should be like drug tested and whether or not x y and z if they're worthy but at the end of the day we need to like be focusing on the language and our attitudes towards individuals because it literally could happen to just about anyone Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the important piece is if we were spending more time focusing on sharing our life experiences and humanizing each other rather than judging people based on their like misfortune or life experiences, then we might get somewhere. 100% agree. Because we all have baggage, varying levels, varying degrees, but like everyone has baggage in some fashion. If we talk about that baggage, then we learn more about each other and we can help each other. Okay, I'm really stuck on baggage because I, I don't know, I feel like baggage is a negative term. 100%. Like, like how do we, because it's not baggage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Life it's experiences. Not, not handbag trauma. No. <laughs> no, but like, literally, I literally have told people, you can ask people at Jesse Tree, I have like, said like, I'm just a bag of trauma and bones. And they're like, like, what are you saying now? But no, I I actually really appreciate that you mentioned that because that was a reframe for me. Like, it it shouldn't be even called baggage, but like I have become conditioned to myself. And that's also something that I'm like working on is like 
positive affirmations and mantras because I am very like self-critical. But I think a more appropriate word or like more appropriate term than baggage would be just like life experience. Mm -hmm. Because we all have life experiences, good and bad. Mm -hmm. And how we navigate through those experiences and what we learn or don't learn from those experiences impact and kind of pave the the road for like what's next. But now I'm never going to use the word baggage, so thank you. <laughs> I'm joking, but like I, I really do, I really do appreciate that because that is a different way we This is my lived experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a little bit better, a little bit more positive. Yes. <laughs> That's funny, Maria. I like that. I think you did a really good job of just taking a moment to like think of what people are saying and what they're doing and so I think that's kind of like what's important to keep people just I guess growing as an individual and so I kind of want to ask you like what do you think we as a community can be doing to help people thrive oh that's a big question I think having more converse more authentic conversations would be one thing like good bad the ugly I think calling out if it's safe to do so when you're in a position and you notice that like individuals say certain things about certain communities or populations Mm -hmm. speaking up and more inclusive resources and agencies like there's never I don't think there's ever going to be enough resources but I think it's something that we can always strive for is to like have more resources and more like wraparound in-house services so that people don't have to like go to one place for one thing and another place for another thing and then they have to get a release from that one to like go to like it's just it's so it is not person centered it is very much a systemic flaw that like needs to be fixed but even I don't have an answer on like how to fix that all right last question um so I want to be mindful of your time and this is off script so see how it goes but uh in a dream world in an ideal community what would you love to see that's such a broad question (laughs) in an ideal world or like a utopia i would say that everyone would hold their judgments and people would be kind and no one would have to worry about being judged for being vulnerable and everyone will have housing and everyone will have food and everyone will have health care and transportation would be better. Public transit would be better. Specific to Boise. Yeah. <laughs> and the surrounding areas. And there wouldn't there would be less of a divide in terms of like class ism. Because I think at the end of the day, everyone has, everyone has something to offer. And I was just having a conversation like last night with one of my coworkers about how I think the aging and elderly are so like discredited and discounted, but like they are some of like the wisest people in our culture or in society. So that's the long winded answer. Well, here's to hoping that we can work towards creating that vision, a reality for for our community and and beyond. Thank you so much, Terry, for taking the time to chat with us today. I really, really enjoyed it and really 
grateful to have co-conspirator like you working in our community and, and making uh, making this a better place for everybody. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you for everybody who listened. We will be back next well, two weeks uh, with another episode of The Prevention Perspective. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Prevention Perspective. Again, if you or someone you know has experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Or you can call the WCA's 24-hour hotline at 208-343-7025. Don't forget to follow us on social media at WCA underscore Boise and WCA Youth Reps. If you have any suggestions for topics you would like us to cover or get more information about anything you heard on today's episode, contact us through the email provided in the description of the podcast. 